Hello, friends. This is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com, in an audio-only interview today on the 26th of June, 2023. And for those of you who were keeping track of the news feeds this past weekend, you will have noticed some really crazy things going on in Russia. For anyone who fell asleep on Friday and is just waking up right now, you probably, uh, well, I guess you won't have any clue what's going on, but I guess there was a coup d'etat attempt, a mutiny, uh, some sort of false flag event that involved some sort of psyop or something along those lines, a, a special military operation to use the Kremlin's lingo. Something else entirely? What just happened is what I think a lot of my listeners might be asking at this point, and it's a good question. So in order to help solve that puzzle, let's turn to a source that will be new, I'm sure, to some of the people in the audience. Hopefully not everyone, but if so, you will have a new source to be looking at. That is The Slavland Chronicles by Rolo Slavsky. It's at roloslavsky.substack.com. Obviously, that will be linked in the show notes where you can find a lot of coverage that Rolo has been doing in the past couple of days about this topic. Um, for example, uh, such posts as, I told you so, Prigozhin wins the SMO, lives to fight another day, and Russians support Wagner, actually, uh, amongst other pieces that I'm sure we'll get into in the course of this conversation. So let's welcome him on board. Rolo, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Eager to talk, eager to share. Good, because I'm eager to listen. There is so much information to go through here, and I really do want to get into the specifics of what happened and get into the weeds of this. But before we do that, I suppose, since it is your first time and people might be curious as to who you are, and as, as I saw on a comment on another site that ran one of your articles a year or so ago, someone was just saying, who's this Rolo Slavsky guy and why should we be listening to him? So I guess however you want to answer that question. Right. Uh, well, you know, about the whole anonymity thing, I think uh, it's very strange that people still uh, act like it's something that others haven't done, that it's not a historical trend or phenomenon. It's It's been done before. Uh, there's no real reason to act like it's this big, big deal that I prefer to remain anonymous. Um, I don't think that's automatic proof that I'm a CIA member or a KGB member. I think it's just clear that there are reasons why I want to keep my privacy, probably because a lot of people that I know are living in the countries that are at war. So that might be it, among other reasons. Uh, as for who, what I do say about myself, I have lived in Russia. Uh, I mean, I'm from, I was born in Kiev, uh, but, um, you know, if you know anything about that, the, the war and who lives there, uh, there are a lot of people stuck in Ukraine that consider themselves Russians. I grew up in the United States. I spent a lot of years there, but then I, I, uh, I moved to Russia. And um, so when I was in Russia, I worked for state media for a little bit. I also was involved in um, sort of like the grassroots political scene. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just have a lot of buddies that are involved in, uh, in the news in Russia that uh, run a lot of these telegram channels. I know people who are fighting uh, in Donbass. I know people who have returned from that fight. Um, so this is kind of like the milieu that I live, breathe, and swim in. And um, what else can I say about myself? I don't know. I really do think that the writing speaks for itself. I mean, if you can, uh, I if you can just sort of put aside the assumption that I'm uh, literally a paid state agent for just a second and just read what is written in front of you and uh, see if it matches up and see how my track record works because I'm not, I mean, you can see what I wrote a month ago and you can see 
the events that transpired. And I really hate to toot my own horn like this immediately before I've really introduced myself and gotten to know your audience, but uh, I don't think there's anyone that's had a better track record, especially in recent months of of getting things right. So once again, I think that should speak for itself. But um, yeah, well, I wouldn't be say. having you on if I didn't uh, see some of that track record that's already accumulated, and obviously want to pick your brain about that. So let's let's dive into this. And uh, I, I am aware that there is going to be differing levels of awareness and understanding of people in the audience. Some are geopolitical pros and have this all down pat, and probably are two steps ahead of both of us. But there are other people who do not know anything about what's going on in Russia or what this latest move is or who this Wagner guy is that the the MSM are talking about all of a sudden. So let's start getting into some basics of basically what is the Wagner Group? Who founded it? What what what's what is its role in the SMO overall? What has it been its role, and where did this tension start to develop? Well, that's a really really uh, broad question. Um, so, and a lot of this stuff is is still coming out, and a lot of it really needs to be contextualized. But okay, I'll just throw some stuff out there and see uh, what sticks here. So, with um, there's a guy called Dmitry Utkin, and uh, Utkin was a GRU guy. Uh, GRU is is like military intelligence, and this group was founded uh, with basically him spearheading it, and it was uh, founded uh, during the Syria campaign. Uh, it, I mean, it was founded going into the Syria campaign, and if you believe the words of Prigozhin himself and, and some other sources, uh, and if you or if you just read my blog where I explain all this, uh, pretty much Wagner was the Russian force fighting in Syria. So Utkin was this pro. Uh, he was a veteran of um, Chechnya and and uh, I believe Transnistria, and um, his call sign that that's his nickname. It was uh, Wagner. And the reason why he uh, likes Wagner is because he's a big fan of uh, German nationalism. And uh, so then this, this, this name was applied to the whole unit, which is now also affectionately referred to as the musicians. And then a lot of different stuff happened along the way where they kind of picked up some of the insignia, some of the, I guess, the memes that are associated with them, like the sledgehammer, for example. The sledgehammer was first used in Syria uh, in a very famous video where they caught um, uh, basically, I think, a traitor who was feeding information to the enemy uh, that had gotten some of the soldiers killed. And so they uh, broke his legs uh, with a sledgehammer on video. And that won them a lot of popularity and a lot of support. And uh, people were really into it. Even this little symbol that they do, it looks a little bit like uh, what a surfer would make. It looks like shaka bra. Or what did, what did they used to say the surfers? Well, it's like a. I guess it looks like uh, an L, right? Uh, that symbol has also become popular. The hammer has been popular. It's like an, it's become an award that's handed out to politicians. Um, their style has become popular. So Wagner's become a phenomenon. There's a lot of videos out there on TikTok, on, on social media. Um, I suppose you, a lot of people haven't seen this stuff, but um, if you're kind of in the Russian sphere, it's hard not to realize just what a cultural it's like some K-pop band. It's on that level. Right. right? It's right. like BTS. So it's, so it's putting big. this so putting this in terms that uh, the Americans in the crowd would understand. I mean, what is its relation to something like Blackwater? Well, it's like um yeah, I, I, yeah, it's a good that's a good comparison, but um I guess everything about them is different, uh, except for the fact that they're both 
mercenary groups. How does that work? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I get the point. And plus, because Blackwater was never a cultural phenomenon in America. So it's difficult, I think, for people to wrap their heads around what this really represents to the average Russian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Blackwater was kind of uh, always wrapped up in shame because uh, they got caught up in that Fallujah thing. I believe it was Fallujah. It was when those um, when they shot up a crowd and they ended up having some of their uh, soldiers their mercenaries uh, burnt and uh, their corpses tied up and hung over some bridge. They were basically the ones, I think, that precipitated the Fallujah Rebellion. So they've always tried to keep a low profile, and they've always tried to, um, I guess, pretend that they're not there. And uh, whereas Wagner is the complete opposite. They, uh, they really want to make a big splash. And this is almost certainly related to the fact that Prigozhin uh, and uh, other people in Wagner uh, want to become a force uh, in Russian politics. So this is sort of their, 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 this is why they have a different approach than, say, Eric Prince, right? Right. So let's talk uh, about Prigozhin, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who you've mentioned a couple times now. So Dmitry Utkin is the, the, the Ukrainian born Russian, right? Who, um, was in the GRU, who uh, apparently this is named after his call sign, the Wagner Group. But it was Prigozhin who actually founded Wagner? Um, well, well Prigozhin is like the CEO. Um, Utkin is the commander. Like he's, I guess you would call the strategist. He's like the military guy. He's the one who's, uh, who's um, planning operations and stuff. Uh, Prigozhin is... He's several things, but he's, he's, the, he's basically like the, the PR guy. That's, that's what he's very famous for now and he's the also the political liaison i guess you could say so he's the one so you know okay oof, taking a few steps back uh, mercenary groups are illegal in russia and uh but of course there are a lot of mercenary groups i think there are about 40 now fighting uh either in africa or in uh in ukraine and um but this is against the law but this is against russian law and there were groups that came along before uh, Wagner or around the same time as Wagner who were basically trying to be trying, trying to do the same thing in Donbass. But they weren't allowed to do that because they just couldn't, they didn't have the connections. Uh, and so Prigozhin was this guy who could actually provide Wagner with the connections that they needed to Putin. And uh, that seems to have always been his role. And uh, he's an ambitious man with political uh with, with political ambitions and uh, he's got balls of steel. I mean, he really, he's willing to play dirty. He's willing to play hardball. And so I wouldn't never, I would not count him out. I would not count against him. I've written many articles saying that he is the key political figure within Russia now to keep your eyes on. I've been talking about him for six months. I'm the only guy who's translating his stuff into English, uh, apart from like, you know, a few clips here and there that like NATO people were uh, promoting. So I'm the only guy from like a sort of a pro-Russian perspective that is giving him a voice and saying, listen, we should be listening to him. Um, but I've totally veered off track. Uh, do you want to? Well, okay, so we're, yeah. well, I think we're, we're actually getting on track because I think we're just onboarding people into this. I mean, it is, there's so much to go through, but let's, so let's bring in the other aspect of this that you were talking about and pointing to, which a lot of people were not paying attention to for the last several months, which is uh, Prigozhin's in increasingly bellicose rhetoric against Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu. And there's clearly some horrible 
a slight to Wagner and the troops that uh, that uh, Prigozhin has been incredibly angry ab- about and making really, really bellicose statements about for months now that a lot of people were ignoring. But you were pointing out this. You were talking about it. You were translating his videos. Tell us what this beef is. Uh, well, we actually don't know everything about the beef. Um, and and it's very, very difficult to have an honest conversation about it because a lot of people who write about Russia are either extremely, almost genocidally anti-Russian, not even almost, I mean explicitly. I don't know if you were saw this, I know you don't have a Twitter, but uh, there was a video of a Russian who got eaten by a shark uh, off the coast of Egypt. And it was this um, social media sensation where all the you know pro-liberty, democracy, human freedom people, all the good people, the people on the right side of history, uh, they were celebrating his death and they were basically saying, good, this is what ought to happen to every Russian. The media in the West is so, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's like the 10 minutes of hate, except it's been going on for, uh, we're going on, it's the second year now. So uh, what's going on here is you have people who look at that and they, they take the opposite position and they say, well, this is insane. This is insanity. This is how can you talk about this about a group of people and their government? Uh, it's absurd, and they're right. Uh, but what they do is they are they, in their eagerness to distance themselves and differentiate themselves from people promoting this kind of disgusting uh, rhetoric uh, on the on the pro West, uh, pro NATO side. Uh, they go into the complete opposite deep end, where everything that Russia does is good. Everything that they do, it can't be wrong. They're winning, even when it looks like they're losing. And so it's it's really just impossible to have a conversation about anything. Uh, and, and so when I try to to say, look, I'm I'm pro-Russian, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, that's I, I think, but I think that the that the Kremlin's messing up. I think that things are not going smoothly. You know, I think that uh, the situation with Prigozhin and the Ministry of Defense is. It's uh, it's going to lead to a civil war uh, or a coup, and and that, and then we the first salvo uh, happened. Uh, people think that basically I am siding with the people who are posting videos about a Russian getting eaten by a shark and celebrating that. So if I try to explain the beef between uh, your question, the beef between uh, the Ministry of Defense, uh, Shoigu and Prigozhin, you have to understand that a significant chunk of all these different people who've been writing about the war, they will not, well, maybe they've changed their tune a little bit in like the last 12 hours or 24 hours. But prior to that point, they refused to acknowledge that such a thing could even be possible, that there could be a beef between these people. To them, the narrative was, it was all fake. It was a deliberate ruse to trick Kiev into thinking that they were divided so that they could uh, fall into some military ambush set up by uh, Prigozhin, Putin, and Shoigu. You know, and you know what's funny. You know what's really funny. In fact, that is exactly what "quote unquote" ex CIA analysts are now floating on Fox News. <laughs> the latest uh, I saw, Vladimir Putin orchestrated the Wagner coup with Prigozhin as a classic false flag, <laughs> in which apparently the false flag was to um, basically. Uh, fool the West and, and and Ukraine into thinking that Russia's 
political and military power was in question, but it was all a part of a, a big bruise. Ha ha ha. And I guess they won. And that's literally what ex quote unquote ex CIA analysts are floating in Western media right now. And yet that's, that's what a lot of these quote unquote Russian analysts would essentially be saying. You, you raise the important point, which is that for people who kind of dimly understand the rest of the world. I mean, when you look at your own internal politics, like for Americans looking at American politics, you can easily differentiate the Biden from Trump and, and all the other players. And even within an administration, well, there was Trump, but then there was people like Bolton. And, you know, he's not really one of the mega people. He was brought in. He was a neocon, blah, blah, blah. You know all of the different fault lines and factions. But when you look at the other side, when you look at Russia, for example, it's just one big monolith and it's just one thing and everyone's acting together, which is self-evident nonsense if you stop to think about it. But most people don't stop to think about it. So I, most people are just learning the name of, say, uh, uh, a Prigozhin or a, a, a Shoigu or uh, some of these other players who were involved in this and have no idea about these fault lines. But it is important that we start we start bringing this to the attention of more people so that they at least know what is happening internally. So, sorry, sorry for interrupting, but I just think it's important to underline that, that Russia is not a monolith and there are different factions and there are different people in, in different roles and they can be at war with each other internally, even as... The, uh, the people outside seem to think of it's just sort of one big state that's all together. Yeah, and you know, I I don't really watch or read Western news uh, at all. Um, thankfully, I don't need to do that anymore for my job. But what you're telling me is very interesting. I was wondering where they came up with this new 5D narrative. There's a couple floating out there now, but that's one of them. And I was yeah. So it seemed, and so these are the same people that would tell you that everything that comes out of CNN or, or, or any Western media's mouth uh, is a lie. But the minute that that lie somehow, you know, pleases them or justifies their position, it doesn't make them look like fools, like charlatans who don't know what they're talking about. They're quick to gobble it up. Um, so there's no consistency here whatsoever. I think that a lot of these people are actually, I mean, I'm constantly accused of this because God forbid I should you know, say something critical of the Kremlin. Um, but I'm, I'm constantly uh, accused of, of being a paid agent of some government or another. But I believe I have a lot. There's a lot more evidence to prove that these people are actually uh, paid agents of one government or the other. Uh, what's interesting and what I would encourage people to consider is that while some of them clearly are on uh, the Kremlin's payroll, uh, Scott Ritter comes to mind. I think he's still doing his book tour in Russia right now. And his his lies are so absurd. And the thing is that the public as the memory of goldfish. Um, they don't remember what the guy was saying yesterday or a week ago or a month ago. So, you know, I, I've been really trying to get these guys to answer and, and to address the claims that Prigozhin made because they actively lied about Prigozhin. So a lot of people are floored by what happened. They, it came out of nowhere to them because they weren't following the situation. And how could they follow the situation? Because it wasn't being reported on by their favorite bloggers uh, who were deliberately misinforming their audiences. I wrote this article attacking the Duran people, um, Mercurus and uh, I forget the other guy's name. Uh, but uh, so what happened was they they were starting to talk about Prigozhin finally. This is about a month ago and actually a little bit more. No, around like May 1st uh, when, that, when, the, when the bodies video came out of Prigozhin standing before the corpses of, of all the soldiers that uh, had he had lost. Um, 
So that was like a big watershed moment. So they, they were kind of forced into covering it. And what they did was they, they pretended to translate and analyze one of the videos that Prigozhin released, because at that point he was starting to release these videos. And in these videos, he was giving a lot of interesting information. He was giving real insider stuff like insider baseball, who spoke to who, who betrayed who, what the real cause of this was, uh, what's going on. I mean, it, it was. And so what I did was I was translating and hitting and getting the bullet points across. Right now, what these guys were doing was they were present. They were presenting themselves uh, as a, as if they were summarizing the videos and the gist of it. And it, it, every single time that they did it, what what it was was just like there's nothing here. He didn't say anything interesting. He basically was just upset that he's uh, a bit low on ammunition, but it's probably just a trick to fool Kiev. And if you actually watch the video, there'd be like 50 fascinating points about. Uh, for example, this war wasn't started because Ukraine wanted to invade Russia. The war was started because Medvedchuk, uh, the oligarch, uh, asked Putin to, to invade. You know, like stuff that's bombshell level rev revelations, if true, right? Being said by by this guy, and all of it was deliberately obfuscated and ignored. I wrote an article today, show highlighting just how bad it is that about um, you know, there's like I guess 20 big names. Uh, that are associated with this. And then there are also people who, who it's not like the thing that they, they write about. It's not their bread and butter, but they will talk about Russia to large audiences. And then they will cite the smaller, more specialized bloggers like these 20. And of them, I can only really uh, be sure that about four of them speak Russian. So, uh, you know, most of these people do not have access to primary sources. They do not watch the videos. They do not, uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's incredible, really. I saw one of them do an AI machine translation of, of some video with uh, Pragajan, and it was so butchered. It was the video that came out recently of him sitting on the bench with the old uh, generals that he had arrested or, or whatever. And the, the, he actually came, this guy who watched the video, uh, came to the exact opposite conclusion uh of what was actually being said because the machine had butchered it so badly and he even wrote an article uh about it Be just because the translation was bad and he and he messed it up so it's that bad there's like a, and of the of the few that do actually speak russian they're not much better because they also have an agenda that they're pushing um well so let's let's fill bad. people in on on some of these details so for example let's point people to the article you wrote back in april um wagner's uh Prigozhin issues most dire warning yet ahead of ukrainian counterattack. and there you have the bullet point list of all of these incredible things that he was saying in this video step by step by step and uh i, I am not a russian speaker so i can't verify this uh, from the video but that you link up the video so people can watch it in russian right there and and check your translation and make sure it's accurate. Um, which, as you say, a lot of these supposed Russian experts don't seem to be able to do, at least not in the English language media, which is obviously what we're talking about here. We'll get more into that 5D chess narrative and how it distorts things that are going on right now. But let's get back to the issue of Prigozhin and Shoigu and the, the perceived or very real um, problems with the way this special military operation is running that made Prigozhin so angry in the first place. Again, I mean, that is, there's a lot to say about that. And, and once again, no one's been saying it. It's been how long? It's been more than a year at this point. And if you even utter a peep, like of trying to, anything that comes off at all as a criticism of your side, 
I mean, the NATO, the NATO, NATO people are just as vicious. I mean, they, they, they are. There's this guy that they have on their side, who's you know a somewhat decent analyst, actually, on Twitter. His name is um, Rep Repke, I think. Uh, R O E P K E. Uh, he's all right. He's made some good calls. I'm not saying I agree with his views or anything like that. I'm saying as an analyst, he does an okay job. And um, so anytime he he breaks with the narrative and says something about how things might not be going well for Kiev, man, uh, these people swarm him. They attack him, and they're on the same side. And uh, and and frankly, they're being paid. Uh, it's 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 not it's not an accusation. It's it's a, it's a fact that these people there are centers set up to promote the NATO narrative, and they've hired some millennials who know how to make memes, and that's what they do. But I've digressed. So. The discussion has to be had, and it hasn't been had really up to this point. I've only—it's been um, a year and some—and only recently has has there been just a tiny little bit of interest in actually figuring out what happened in uh, to that uh, to in the war, like what what happened that made things go so wrong. Of course, none of the people that I named in my article will ever admit that anything went wrong at all. It's all perfect. Everything is just perfect. These it's a cult with these people. But to anyone who's actually interested in figuring out the truth, the reason why a lot of things went badly, there are several reasons. First, uh, you have to use that old um, adage or axiom of Clausewitz uh, to understand that, uh, what is it, war is an extension of politics, right? It's, it's politics by other means. In other words, the political questions are important to understand. If you understand the political realities uh, and, and, and you base your assumptions on them, you're going to have a better time predicting things and understanding things than if you focus on the purely military technical thing. There are, there are bloggers out there who will write these long articles explaining to you barrel length and diameter and how that's going to affect the war and how because you have a certain kind of turret that proves that the Russians are going to win. You know, they totally miss everything of actual importance it's interesting to some people. Some people are hobbyists. They like this sort of thing. And I, you know, that's fine. You can do that. But don't pretend that this is actually anything approaching an actual political analysis. So the real reasons why it failed were political. And it's quite clear that there was, uh, that this was, that it was political considerations um, that, uh, that undermined the SMO, that started the SMO, and uh, that have led to this stagnating situation with the SMO where it's, it's not a war, it's just a policing action, and yet hundreds of thousands of people are fighting in this policing action. I, I, can I ask you a question? Do you, do, do you think you and, and uh, your readers and your followers, do you think they know that in Russia you're not allowed to say that it's a war? Like, is this a common known They fact? should know because I have reported on that, but maybe they don't. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, let's, let's underline that and repeat that for the heart of thinking. You should, you should like have a test for them. Yeah. Did you do your homework? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So there, and uh, can anyone explain like why they, they, it's true that you cannot say war, uh, you have to say special military operation. Can't, if you, you, people have gotten in trouble for saying that it's a war and it's become sort of like um, a, a signal rhetoric, right? So if you use the word war, uh, then that mean in certain contexts it means you're signaling that you're against uh, Russia or at least the Russian government, right? Uh, whereas if you stick to the terminology prescribed by the Kremlin, it shows that you are on on their side, right? So it's become like this this 
I'm, I'm trying to think of an equivalent term in America that like if you use it one way, it proves that you're a Republican. If you use it another way, it proves that oh, you're... Oh, right. But There's probably dozens that aren't springing to right. mind right now. But I mean, my my paradigm for this, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, well, it, it's an interesting form of newspeak anyway. And uh, yeah. it, whether you conform to the newspeak or not shows on what side of the line you are. Yes. Right. So uh, some of the people who don't conform to the newspeak are... Patriots, and that's my whole blog, and that's my whole perspective. I'm trying to give the opinions and share the the, the like awareness uh, of people within Russia that um, that are similar to Westerners, uh, people who feel like their government it does not represent them, people who feel like uh, there's a lot of corruption, people who uh, resisted the the COVID tyranny, uh, people who are very skeptical about globalist organizations like the WEF or the WTO or, you know, Bilderberg or whatever, people who are pejoratively labeled as consp conspiracy theorists uh, by their own media, um, you know, that kind of people. And I'm trying to get their perspectives out. And so these people, they will break the taboo and they will say it's a war or they will come up with some other funny euphemism. I call it the not war. I use that because I don't want to get in trouble either. And also because uh, it's just funny because it's 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 satirical. So they come up with other ways of saying uh, a war without actually saying it. Right, but there so there, there there may be something to this in the sense that uh, I I've heard the theory floated and it makes some f form of sense that originally this was some form of SMO yes. policing action, yeah. but it became something like a war, and that is not part of the five D chess master Kremlin plan. No, no. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think Riley and I had a podcast uh, or several about this. And um, yeah, we our theory is quite simple. That uh, to get to your previous question is that they were that that yes, the Kremlin tried to do a special military operation, a policing action. What they did was they rounded up SWAT. They rounded up. Um, uh, there's a different kind of SWAT. It's called Sober and Omon. Uh, and they 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 rounded up some mall cops. They put them in trucks, and they and they moved on Kiev. As that was like the main thrust of it. About seventy or eighty percent of the whole force went on to Kiev, and they arrived there at the gates of Kiev, and they sat around for for a bit, uh, and then they left and leave and they left behind a bunch of equipment. And I mean, like if you look at the skeleton framework narrative of this we've known so little but we've had to speculate and if you like what if you sorry to brag here again but like if you look at the speculation that i've been doing over these last months without a lot of information just trying to logically piece it together based on what i know about the kremlin and how russian politics works uh and now you look at some of the new revelations that have come out so for example uh, we found out about the secret peace treaty that was signed uh, between kiev and russia um about a couple weeks into the smo that, I think, is the point where the SMO transitions away from SMO into something similar to an almost war. I still don't want to call it a war fully because the Kremlin isn't treating it like a war. They're not fighting it seriously. So what happened was uh, they show up in Kiev. They try to, as I believe and as I try to prove, uh, they try to install an oligarch uh, puppet in, into power in Kiev. They don't want to do away with Ukraine. They want to create Ukraine 2.0. They want to do what they did in Kazakhstan literally a month prior, where they just kept a, a guy who was slightly less anti-Russian in power. His name was President Takayev, who was almost overthrown by an orange revolution. 
Russia sent in troops and Armenia, uh, and they quickly quelled the rebellion. They put the guy back in charge, and uh, and then they left. And uh, you know, they they kind of put out a fire temporarily, and that's 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 called winning. That's called success in the Kremlin's mind. I'm pretty sure that was exactly what they were trying to do with Kiev as well. They were trying. They tried to send men. They tried to affect uh, a political coup within Kiev, either through allies that are within the city or through agents that they were trying to activate to uh, seize uh, control uh, key parts. It failed. Um, they sign a secret peace deal. They withdraw, uh, and immediately after they withdraw. Uh, Kiev tears it up and says, we're going to fight you. Uh, we're going to fight a real war. And so Russia quickly scrambles, redeploys its men to Donbass, and the not war begins. Uh, during this time, it, it's quite clear that they don't have enough men, that they don't have enough equipment, uh, that uh, Ukraine has been prepared, and Russian intelligence has does not know anything. Uh, Russia's army has been thoroughly looted by Shoigu. Uh, Russia is, uh, for, they, they do this incredibly damaging and suicidal approach to the war where they, um, they only used, uh, contractniki, contractniki. It's, uh, people who already have a contract with the, uh, the military, the government. So they were sending anyone who basically was contractually obliged to follow orders at that time. And what it ended up happening was they ended up getting all their officers killed. Uh, because they were sending these skeleton units uh, comprised primarily of officers or like young lawyers. Because, you know, if you want to be a jurist uh, dealing with uh, government type stuff, you, you're basically, it's, it's, it's a Soviet leftover thing. Uh, it, it's, it's considered a military career. So you have to be in the military to become a lawyer. So a bunch of young lawyers were sent uh, to, to fight. Why? Because they had a contract. People from boats were taken off their boats and sent in as, uh, as, uh, infantry people who should be flying planes. Same thing. A bunch of weird people who really shouldn't have been there in that war were sent to the, to fight simply because the Kremlin did not want to treat it like a war. They didn't want to mobilize. Uh, the army was in such a sorry state after Shoigu's, uh, thorough looting, uh, that all they had to rely on was these professionals who couldn't say no. And then finally, they had to rely on mercenaries. They had to rely on Wagner, which actually had uh, battle experience, which had a lot of money, which had the best commanders because they were kicked out of the regular Russian army by Shoigu uh, because they were too, you know, he was very, you know, anytime... Anyone who works at the workplace or will, will, will confirm this. Anytime you show a little bit too much competence, uh, the higher-ups get a little bit uneasy with that, and you will find that your career growth is, is severely limited. Uh, mediocrity is almost always rewarded, and it's the same thing in the Russian military under Shoigu. So you have this group with uh, experience, with good commanders, with uh, a track record of success, the Russian government is forced to start relying on them because of the sorry state of their military. And they're also forced to start relying on about 40 other mercenary groups of whom nobody even really knows anything about, especially in the Western media. I try to report on that as well. Um, Wagner takes Solidar, and then they spend uh, eight months or nine months uh, slugging it out over Bakhmut. And it was halfway into the siege of Bakhmut when all the troubles with the Ministry of Defense began. Um, we know from an FSB report, FSB is like the FBI of Russia, the, the former KGB, uh, that they confirmed this, uh, that the Ministry of Defense under Shoigu had slashed, uh, was only giving 50% of the supplies that were promised to uh, Wagner. 
this is kind of a big deal. This is sort of the beginning of the open conflict. So you asked me, what is the source of it? Well, I'm sure there's more to it. I'm sure there's a lot more uh, hidden agenda. I'm sure that there's uh, political factions that play palace politics, palace intrigues, right? But from the visible, the sort of the above ground part of it, where like, you know, if you're on the metro or the subway and it's underground and then finally it comes out on the, and you can, and, and then you can actually see it for a little bit of time. We're talking about that part, like the visible stuff, right? right? Where the deep state emerges out into the, into the open. Well, I'll, I'll throw in some links for people who are, who have no idea about this. I'm just going back to February, for example, Russian officials are denying ammunition to Wagner fighters, says group founder, um, which was followed up a few days later by Moscow agrees to give Wagner more Ukraine battle shells after row. Um, And then in April, um, we had Newsweek even reporting Wagner boss, boss Prigozhin step, steps up political ambitions in Russia, talking about him looking to further his political aspirations, working to gain control of a political party in Russia, according to a new assessment. And he has growing cooperation with the Adjust Russia for Truth party. And it talks a little bit about that. And then um, from May, we have Russian mercenary chief says he's been told to stay in Bakhmut or be branded a traitor. Uh, this is all from mainstream Western news sources, so take it for what it's worth. But at least this is, as you say, where the, uh, the 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 sort of internal politics and whatever's happening behind the scenes emerges out into the open. Yeah, that last one, um, that happened later. That was part of this unfolding drama. So it starts, uh, it starts with um, uh, this, uh, the first one you said, basically, what was it? It was that um, uh, uh, Russian officials are denying ammunition to Wagner fighters. And that yes. was from February 21st. Yes. So that was the beginning. And uh, that was the beginning of um, Prigozhin attacking the Ministry of Defense. And you can you can chart the escalation. It's it's so visible. And I followed it. And you can just check it out on the blog. Just type type in control F Wagner or Prigozhin. And the timeline uh, is very clear, at least the visible part, where he's saying, why are you not giving me my supplies? Now, in Russia, in the military, um, in Ukraine as well, I'm not, uh, you, you basically, um, there's, there's so much corruption, uh, especially in the military, that uh, one of the theories out there that makes the most sense to me was that um, it, it's it's well, for, it's accepted that basically if you want to get your allocated ammunition, supplies, and weapons, you have to pay a bribe, um, because the Ministry of Defense, Shoigu specifically, and his underlings are making a lot of money off this war. So if you want your men to not die and get access to equipment, at least some of the equipment that uh, hasn't already been sold off by Shoigu, uh, then you have to pay a bribe. You have to get a you have to pay a bribe to get your shells, for example. Uh, Prigozhin is a businessman, and uh, and also he really, really hates Shoigu. Um, and Shoigu, if you are to believe the reports, uh, he's a very difficult person to get along with. Um, he's uh, very full of himself. He's very, uh, you know, he he's very confrontational. And if you know anything about Prigozhin, if you've seen any of the videos, this is like oil meeting water or fire meeting fire. You know, it's like two <laughs> the clash of titans, clash of wills here. That's the way it seems to be anyways. So, so there's that element. And it's I, one of the stories or one of the possible scenarios is that Prigozhin didn't want to play ball by the rules of the Ministry of Defense. So he didn't pay the bribes and he demanded his allocated ammo anyway. So with ammo being allocated, it's quite simple. Uh, you have uh, Soviet military doctrine. Maybe it's updated. I don't know. 
but uh, it's it's very simple. It's just formulas and math. It's like you have X amount of troops over X amount of territory fighting X amount of days or whatever, Y, Z, whatever, and you, you plug it all in and you come up with how much the military is obligated to give you uh, in shells for you to be effective. Those who, if, if, if the command does not do that, they are negligent in their duties. So Prigozhin's argument was basically that, um, that uh, they basically had not fulfilled their obligations to him. Um, so that was the origin of it, uh, the, the visible part of it. He, it was like a, uh, you know, a, a, like a military bureaucracy uh, problem or, or a question that was raised. So uh, then as the conflict continues, uh, he starts spilling more beans. He starts revealing more about workings within the Ministry of Defense, about the politics, about who is who and what, like, you know, just, he was starting to air dirty laundry, basically raising the stakes because Shoigu and his people kept telling him no. Now, several times in that process, it looked like he had won. Like Shoigu and his people were told to basically just give him the ammo, you know, he's, he's causing such a big stink. And besides, uh, the war effort is about to collapse. The Russian army is not advancing anywhere. We've messed everything up. He's the only guy who's uh, able to advance. He's the only guy who's uh, making it look like, we're, you know, like, like things are going well for us, right? For, for a long time, after Russia's catastrophic uh, routes in uh, Kharkiv and the retreat in uh, Kherson, the only action really uh, was... Bakhmut with uh, Wagner and Prigozhin, right? So he had a lot of leverage. He had probably some friends in power in the palace. He had the only battle-capable, uh, successful unit out there. He was the only one going on offensive. And that's when he started using his media, uh, networks that he had already built up. He's, very, he's like Trump in that sense. He, he's good with the media. And uh, and so that he starts airing during. So it, basically, the stakes just keep getting progressively raised. If, uh, one big watershed moment was in May, uh, where he alleged that the Ministry of Defense was specifically trying to get uh, Wagner destroyed, that they had become too much of a problem, they were too independent, and so they were coordinating with Ukrainians. So basically, from the from the Russian Ministry of Defense's side, they were starving Wagner of supplies and and forcing and not letting them retreat uh, from Bakhmut and uh, so that the Ukrainians would do the job for them. So Prigozhin starts filming videos with how many dead men he has and he starts uh, saying that um, they're deliberately killing us by not giving us the ammo that we need um, and so we're forced to use meat uh, to, 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 to keep fighting, like you know, warm bodies, right? And so he issues an ultimatum. Uh, he issues several, actually. One is that uh, he will retreat if he's not given uh, ammo and supplies. And um, before that, though, his reinforcements were cut off. So he had been recruiting. Uh, people put a lot of emphasis on the fact that he was recruiting from prisons. Uh, that is true. He was. It was actually denied by all the 5D people, the Z Anon people. That's, not, that's a new term, I think, that works. So the ZNOM people were denying that this is true because uh, I guess it's not a good look. I, I don't care. I mean, I'd rather be prisoners storming, uh, you know, ruined cities. Like, why not? But whatever. For them, it was like a, a moral hand-wringing moment. Like, oh, my God, Wagner is using convicts. Oh, you know. 
So they denied that, but it's true. But he was also recruiting from other branches of the military. He was, he was, he was, he was getting other soldiers in, people who had rotated out, people who were sick of Shoigu, people, uh, he was uh, volunteers, militiamen, uh, trying to scalp or steal other headhunt uh, from other uh, private mercenary groups. And all that was put to an end. They, they, their efforts were stymied by the Ministry of Defense. So he's lost his ammo. He's lost his uh, reinforcements. He's being told that he has to take Bakhmut now, and if he retreats, it will be called treason. He will be considered a traitor. So uh, he gathers his men, and he loses a lot of them, but he finishes it off, and he storms uh, Bakhmut. At that point, uh, but before he did that, uh, he said he issued an ultimatum, and, that, and that's when we start hearing rumors that uh, he's, he's starting to vaguely allude to the fact that he might move on Moscow. So, you know, that's May, uh, May 9th, whatever. And then uh, by late May, I think it was May 24th or, or 22nd, <clears throat> he takes uh, Bakhmut and then he says, that's it, we're done. We're pulling out, we're going back to regroup and to reform and to lick our wounds. And uh, I'd like to state once again that this was not an elaborate psyop. This was not a ruse. Uh, I really do hate Shoigu. He really is responsible for the death of, of many men. Uh, and, uh, you know, let, let, let me just state that to be clear. And so naturally, all the English uh, analysts and bloggers, they interpreted that to mean wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, oh, no, this is all fake. Nobody died. You know, the Patriots are in control. You know, Tom Hanks is in the tunnel <laughs> and we're going to get him. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I've been rambling, but can I just what? finish real yeah. quick? The go, last go for it. Yep. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm talking a lot, uh, but there's just so much to, to cover, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, one last thing I'll say then. So uh, as, he's, as, as they're being uh, pulled out, which is something that he pledged to do, which the Ministry of Defense did not want him to do, uh, they were ambushed by soldiers from the Ministry of Defense. They were shot at and uh, mines were laid on the road that they were retreating from. But they captured the commander. Uh, that ambushed them. That is, Wagner captured the the seventy second brigade, some officer, and uh, he confessed. And uh, well, he didn't confess that the Ministry of Defense did it, but uh, he confessed that he did uh, begin the attack. And uh, Prigozhin said that this was a deliberate attack, a shot across our bow from the Ministry of Defense to prevent us from retreating and regrouping. But they're not going to stop us. Um, and so there was like a lot of these moments of escalation is, is my point. And you really had to be willfully blind mm. not to see it coming. And the final point was uh, Belgorod. So what happened was um, there was this group called the Russian Volunteer Corps or the Free Russia something, a legion maybe. And uh, they were sent across the border by Kiev into Russia, into Belgorod. And now, now Ukraine has been bombing and raiding Belgorod for a while, actually, for many months. Uh, the Russian media simply covers it up because it's so embarrassing, because they can't control their own borders. And so naturally, the people who repeat their talking points, these intrepid uh, knowledge seekers in the English-Russian uh, blogosphere, they also pretended that it wasn't happening. So it was kind of a big shock when this uh, group uh, burst across the border, took prisoners, shot some people, and then retreated. Um, uh, that was when Prigozhin uh, goes over there and he talks to the locals and the locals say the Ministry of Defense uh, won't let us have guns. They won't let us organize our defense. Uh, we're getting shelled all the time and they cover it up. 
they lied that they beat back the attackers. The, def- uh, the attackers were there when the Ministry of Defense said that they had already been beaten back. Uh, the, the corpses that they showed were staged. Uh, they simply retreated. Uh, please help us, uh, Prigozhin. Uh, you're our only hope. And this is like a lot of videos coming out of Belgorod. And that's when he said that we're going to move to Belgorod and we're going to set up camp here and we're going to secure the border. You know, very Trumpian, I guess. Secure the border, build a wall. And that was when people started freaking out because Belgorod is so close to Moscow. It's like 400 kilometers. And that's when all this stuff started circulating about how, oh yeah, he's definitely going for the coup. My point again is that this was definitely being discussed. This is like definitely out there. It's just it was studiously, deliberately ignored. And what's the date Sorry, on I, I, the Belgorod move? I I don't know. It's on my blog, uh, just Control F uh, Belgorod. But um, it was it was it had to be after uh, the capture of Bakhmut. So I'd right. say early June. Yeah, because I'm looking at the report from June twelfth. Uh, Shoigu orders all PMCs to be placed under Russian Defense Ministry control. Prigozhin immediately okay. refuses, yeah. and I'm assuming that was right. the sort of final line here. Yes, that is the thing. Now we finally come to the precipitating. Again, this is all the visible stuff. We don't know. I'm sure that there was stuff happening behind the scenes. Okay, but th- this is the final visible straw that broke uh, the back. So this move was basically uh, exactly what it says that uh, they were they were going to force all the mercenary groups uh, in theory, but in practice it was it was only going to be aimed at people that they didn't like uh, to bend the knee to the great Khan, uh, to Shoigu. And so Prigozhin said, this is obviously a power grab. Uh, I'm not going to abide by that. And that's when he begins preparing his coup very actively, like in terms of visible active measures being taken to uh, get it ready. So the the visible and obvious thing that he was doing, which uh, I think I also wrote about at the time, or at least I was tweeting about it, uh, was... um, he was just going to units, to commanders, and he, was, and he was getting pledges of loyalty. He was shaking hands. And people were publicly making, fighters were, were making videos saying if they stood with Prigozhin. And, and, and they were saying, yeah, we're with Prigozhin. We're not going to, we, we don't want to be part of that. And other units that were not Wagner also uh, voiced support and hoped that Prigozhin would uh, lead the charge against the Ministry of Defense. And the reason why they didn't want to abide by the orders is because everyone hates Shoigu. And this is something else that you would never know uh, from reading uh, these, uh, these shills, these uh, active disinformation agents. Uh, because Shoigu is not a military man. He's a gangster. Um, he's an ethnic criminal. He's a Tuvan. Uh, and if you don't, don't know anything about the region, uh, let me just say that basically in the 90s, you had an almost Chechnya situation begin there. And they were pogroms of the ethnic Russians there. They were killing them. Teachers were disappearing. Politicians were being assassinated. People were getting burned alive, stoned to death. Women were getting targeted. Children were getting targeted. It was an anti-white terror campaign, an anti-Russian campaign uh, by these uh, Tuvans. Now, Shoigu is from a powerful family. Uh, Well, I mean, he was powerful. Let's just say that. And he was connected in the local politics. So the reason why he was pulled into the power structure in Moscow, it was the same deal as with Kadyrov. They needed some local chieftain that they could bribe to 
sort of pacify the region. Um, Shoigu uh, was associated with literal political parties that wrote uh, the constitution for Tuva in which they said, we reserve the right to have our own army and basically uh, we're going to declare independence. And these parties uh, had active terrorist wings uh, and, and so Shoigu's enmeshed in all that. It's a very, and people know that. They know he's anti-Russian and they don't buy all this stuff about multiculturalism and, and harmony and all that garbage. You know, they, they push the same stuff in the West as they push in Russia. In Russia, it's not as bad, admittedly. So, the, what that, I mean, that's what Shoigu is. Shoigu then becomes a, you know, a boss. He becomes big in United Russia. He becomes the, the, the head fireman, basically, like the head emergency responder. And he's joined at the hip with many powerful people. In, in fact, he predates Putin. Uh, he pred uh, there's, there's a lot of people in power in Russia that predate Putin. Some of them are from the Soviet era. Others are from the Yeltsin era. And uh, so, you know, he's, he's, he's very powerful. And it's very difficult to do anything about him. Also, if you know anything or like if you follow rumors or whatever, he's the most corrupt man in Russia, which is quite you know, quite the title, quite the prize uh, to be to win that designation. He's hated by the military community. The war journals, the military bloggers, the Russians, I mean, they hate this guy. They have always been sounding the alarm about this guy. Uh, there's, you know, there's a political party in Russia that no one in the West knows about, which is a veterans party. And the stuff that they say is far more serious than anything Prigozhin has said, because they also say that the Kremlin has engineered the demographic uh, uh, genocide of the Russian people. And these are all, you know, veterans. These are people, some of them have scars. Like the, the guy who's running, he's got visible scars. He, they've served, they've been in campaigns, they've bled for Russia. And there, and these, um, the, the people who control the minds of, of sympathetic Westerners, like the Saker, who, or the Birdman, uh, as I like to call him, who uh, quit uh, in, uh, I think in February, uh, he called these people preemptively. Uh, the sixth column, and it is because of him that this. Uh, have you heard of this, by the way? I have oh. vaguely, but explain it for the listeners. It's a very pernicious meme, and he was promoting it for many years. Basically, he said there are these agents, these fake agents um, of the West, of like the CIA or whatever, who pretend that they're patriotic, but in reality, it's like uh, you know they're they're just trying to topple Russia and uh, destroy it. So do not listen to anything that these uh, patriot dissidents within Russia have to say. It's a CIA front. So he basically, and he was big. I mean, this guy is like, we're talking millions. So millions. Just, to, just to underline that, it's literally uh, trying to undermine actual criticism of Russian government moves from within Russia by Russian patriots as some yes. sort of plot by the West. I mean, this is ultimate. Yeah. This, is, this is beyond 5D. We're getting into 2060, Jess, here. I think that there's a case to be made. So a lot of these patriots will say stuff that are very similar to, say, like the yellow vests in France or like the uh, MAGA people in America to like, you know, I, I don't want to like uh, a shoebox or, or put, put them, you know, in a category. But basically people who, you know, a conspiracy theorist that will say that there's there's plots to that are not by the elite that are not in our interest. Right. A lot of these patriots are saying stuff that would be very damaging to the globalist elite, whether it's uh, you know the globalist elite in Russia or, or, or the West. 
is it a is it a surprise or a coincidence? Is it just a you know a mishap that uh, a lot of these people who live in the United States, who I mean, like with the Saker, again, he was like the kingpin. He was the biggest. He lives in Florida. Um, he has a background as literally a spook. Uh, he was working for um, this. Uh, what do you call it? The C CSIS, I think it's called. It's the um, it's the peace monitors. It's the it's the people that they send in to like check to make sure that you know UN troops are doing well or that, that there isn't a buildup. This man was working actively against Yugoslavia, against Serbia, uh, in the interests of NATO. Um, he was uh, very anti-Russian until, by his words, he met a Russian spook, and this Russian spook told him that we're all patriots in Russia, and all of a sudden he was like, "Oh my God, I've been on the wrong team. I got to support Russia now." I mean, the, the, the guy's story is very strange. Uh, his name is, uh, his real name is Revsky, I think, Andrei Revsky. He worked, uh, he was, uh, he lived in Switzerland. He was, uh, he was also working closely with, uh, from what I understand, like uh, radical Muslim groups, uh, Shiites. And um, yeah, and like, I mean, back in the day, I actually used to, I, I volunteered to, to write a few, to, to help with translations back in the day. And, uh, and then I learned, I got, I learned this whole drama where basically he was um, trying to force the Serbs, uh, that most of the group were, were Serbs that were eager to sort of promote a, cant, a counter NATO narrative. And he was trying to basically force them to promote a pro Islam line. If you know anything about Yugoslavia, it's like a very strange thing to demand of them. That's basically the NATO position. Um, so he's got a very weird story. And one of his disciples, literally a guy who he, you know, promoted is Big Surge. Big Surge is one of the, the big names now. Why? Because he repeated the Sacker's talking points. The Sacker had millions of people reading him. So uh, this guy is now a big name. Another guy was a writer for his blog. I think he used to be Nighthawk or something. And now he's uh, Simplicius the Thinker on Substack. Same bullshit. Uh, same narratives. It's all connected. These people are part of a mafia. And they have weird connections, honestly. Uh, but sorry, did, did I answer your question? I feel like I totally veered uh, off. <laughs> I, I think we have lost the plot. Uh, let's get back to the actual plot of the Wagner, what just happened. And who? Uh, I, 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 I've picked up on your, your language about this on your, on your blog. I like the fact that you call this Wagner's SMO, Special Military Operation. Yeah, of course. That's, what, that's essentially what this was. And I guess the real question is, who? what happened and who won? <laughs> Right. Uh, so I think we left off with saying that the units, uh, there were a lot of people that didn't want to be put under Shoigu. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. Things came to a head. Negotiations, from what we know, were called off. Prigozhin says that they tried to kill him, the FSB. Uh, then he says that the Ministry of Defense uh, bombed uh, his soldiers in their camp. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about this. It's still fluid and we'll have to find out. Then he moves to take Rostov, which is nearby. It's a small, it's not small, but it's a, it's a big Russian, it's a, it's a medium Russian city. Uh, he seizes the HQ. He says, uh, I'm going to go to Moscow and I'm going to take you out, uh, Shoigu and Gerasimov, with my own bare hands. And, um, and everyone thinks that uh, he, no one knows what, what to make of it. Everyone's too shocked, but he moves quickly. And all of a sudden, just as we were hearing news about him seizing Rostov, we hear reports that he's already in, in Voronezh, which is uh, only 600 kilometers away. It's, it's north of, of Rostov. It's only 600 kilometers away from Moscow. 
then we learn that the soldiers are laying down their arms or they're they're saying that we're not going to fight Wagner. Basically, disobeying orders because at 9 a.m. this all begins at night, right? And so in the morning, it's he's taken to the HQ. 9 a.m. Uh, Putin comes out and he says, "Wagner are traitors and they will be killed, uh, and they have betrayed their country." And uh, then they start moving on to Moscow, and uh, you know Moscow is basically shitting its pants. A bunch of politicians. This is really funny. No one's reported on this yet, but uh, a bunch of people, like big names in Russia, uh, were completely silent during this stressful 24 hours, right? And uh, and then and and after the after everything was cooled down a little bit, they resurfaced. And one of them is uh, Margarita Simonyan, who's the head of RT. I did an art. I did many articles about her, proving what a horrible lying sack of shit she is. And Edward also, uh, Riley Slavsquat, he he's written a lot about her as well. She's a COVID tyrant, uh, among many other things. So she said, "I'm sorry, I couldn't state or anything, and I couldn't write anything, and I couldn't update anyone on anything for these last 24 hours because I was on a boat in the middle of the river." And I didn't have reception, so <laughs> conveniently so out of touch during the yes. crisis moment. Hmm. Right, fence sitting at its best, yeah, seeing which way the wind blows. Yeah, um, but no uh, one seriously thought that he was really going to what go in there and actually physically remove Shoigu. I mean, that that was that that could not possibly have been the real plan. Well, it's I call it an SMO for the same reason, uh, for a reason. I mean, it's very similar to what the Kremlin, I think, planned to do with Kiev. Um, they planned to show up with muscle. And then operatives within the city, mm. within the political elite, were probably supposed to spring into action and uh, sort of say, right. well... Right, 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 right. And that's why everyone's sitting out. You talk to my friends. Exactly. Everyone's sitting out to see, oh, are they going to turn? Right. So this was more like, does does Prigozhin have real friends in the Kremlin or not? Well, here's the thing. If if, uh, well-connected political people like Simanyan, Margarita, the head of RT, um, if she is... If, 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 for example, this was basically the charge of the light brigade or like a suicide maneuver, right? And these political people knew it, which they, you know, you would assume that they would because they're very connected. They would lose nothing by denouncing it loudly and quickly and, um, you know, louder than everybody else. Because you know that he's going to lose anyway, right? right? If you didn't do that, if right. these elites are not denouncing him, uh, you know, some did, but a lot of them did not. What does that say? It's, it says that politically collected ins- uh, connected insiders thought that he did have a chance, right? That's the only logical conclusion. So that's why they're like, oh, we'll sit on a fence. We'll see how it goes. And before we <laughs> declare um, for, for whose side we are, I think you're right, though. It doesn't make sense that you would take a skeleton crew of, what, 4,000 men and um, storm Moscow, the, the largest city in Europe, uh, lay siege to it? Uh, no, uh, I don't think so either. Um, I think that uh, he was, yeah, he was, he was basically just trying to apply pressure on the situation. I argue that he won, and everyone else, uh, again, uh, these delusional people, they're spinning some other narrative. Half of them are saying, actually, it was a clever maneuver. Uh, do you know this uh, Hinkle guy, Jonathan Hinkle, uh, or do you not follow this? No, nope. doesn't ring a bell to me. Uh, well, d- d- well, basically, he's a 20, I think, 20-year-old kid, 
um, all of a sudden he's got interviews with Lavrov. He's got interviews with uh, Shapiro, uh, Solovyov, the number one TV guy in Russia. He's basically talking to all of Russia's VIPs at 20 years of age. And I mean, what, what, what the hell is that? That's like impossible. Like, you know, who, he, and he's also an unabashed Bolshevik. Like he, he straight up promotes Bolshevism and like hardcore communism. And he spent a lot of time in Moscow, like recently. Hmm. And he's good looking. So, I, I mean, it seems quite obvious. This guy goes to Moscow. He's set up and they're like, hmm, you know, the Kremlin is so stupid and incompetent and, and still filled with these um, rats uh, from the Soviet uh, era. And so they're like, how do we appeal to the West? I know, let's promote communism. So they, they hired Hinkle to do it for them. So, you know, Hinkle's uh, pushing this. He's got a lot, a lot of people, like millions of people reading his stuff. A uh, 20-year-old kid who, who knows about geopolitics. Okay. And so he, he's like showing on the maps that, yeah, basically this is a clever maneuver to basically reposition Wagner slightly more northwards. And it was all just a ploy because at the same time, Anyone who publicly came out against Prigozhin, so it was it was a ploy between it was a plan a plan between Putin and Prigozhin to weed out the disloyal people. Right. So as so anyone that was pro Putin during this uh, sorry pro Prigozhin and supported the mutiny will now, now be arrested, whereas anyone who was uh, against Wagner will now also be arrested, and only the people who trusted the plan, <laughs> who had faith. Will be left alone. These people. Are, this is what's. This is what passes for discourse nowadays about this. This war and this issue. It's a farce. So who won? Who didn't win? Here's my question. What? What? What is yep. Lukashenko's role in all of this? Because okay, so apparently, am I dreaming this, or did I see reports as this was happening? There were reports that Lukashenko had fled to Turkey, and then suddenly he's brokering the peace deal here. And what? What is Belarus's role in this? What's going on with regard to that? I don't know about the Turkey thing, but um, the I might be hallucinating it, but I'm sure I saw some report saying that he has fled or he isn't he isn't in the country now or he can't be located. And they, there was maps showing his route to Turkey. <laughs> I don't know where they got that, but apparently it's something that was being floated in the news wires there. I really don't know. I'm sorry, but uh, I'll check it. Uh, I'm really also going to try and constrain myself and not ramble with this answer because there's a lot I can say about Belarus and Lukashenko. Um, but um, all right, the short of it is uh, Lukashenko is a, is, a, is a very sensible, solid uh, politician. And it wasn't Putin's brilliant diplomacy and maneuvering that de-escalated the situation. It was Lukashenko. <laughs> Lukashenko stepped in and he was the only one that uh, Wagner would trust. And he was the only one that was able to de-escalate the situation. Nobody within, this is a separate country. You know, no one within the entire political class of Russia. Uh, and then we had, you know, Medvedev was, was literally shitting his pants saying, oh my God, we can't let them have the nuclear codes. You know, it was like, it was as if he was channeling his inner Hillary Clinton spirit. Uh, the world will end if, if Wagner gets the nuclear weapons. People really don't understand how far off the deep end Medvedev has gone. Uh, but that's a totally separate story for another time. So, yeah, Lukashenko won. Uh, he now has this mercenary group on his side. Uh, he has a card to play against Moscow. His decision has gotten much stronger. Um, and, uh, yeah, he prevented a civil war, so good for him. Um, 
I hope that answers your question. I, I think it does to... very nicely. And I guess the other question then is that if, assuming Putin and uh, and Prigozhin weren't just putting this all on as some sort of, you know, 6D move, um, what what really was, I mean, what, how can we sum up Putin's response to this other than to say that uh, he Terrible. was... Terrible. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay, elaborate on that. Then. Well, first of all, Putin has, was MIA. Like, Putin's whole job... You know, this is the job of the president in general in any country and his specific job and the way he has conducted himself for the last 20 years is he's supposed to be the mediator between oligarchic spats. OK, he's basically like the, the guidance counselor, you know, the marriage counselor. That's his job. Uh, he's largely powerless. He's a marionetka. Um, but at the same time, I mean, like he's not a king. He's not an autocrat, unfortunately. Uh you know, Russia could probably use that, as I argue in my book. But his role is, is that's like at its best, like the, the most that he's ever really allowed himself is basically to act as a mediator between the oligarchs to prevent things from spilling out into open conflict, into sedition and that sort of thing. And most of that stuff was basically resolved by his, the end of his first two terms with like a couple exceptions. Uh, most of that was already done. So clearly he's gone soft and incompetent because here was a textbook case of an oligarchic spat. Prigozhin and the people who support him versus uh, Shoigu and the people who support him in the middle. And he should have been able to mediate it. Instead, he, uh, you see, he, he completely sided against Prigozhin. Uh, again, they, why not just give the guy his supplies? Uh, why not give him the political power or like, you know, Prigozhin's trying to be accepted uh, by the political class, but in Russia, everything is ossified. There's no movement allowed whatsoever. There are no new players. There's no new blood. The pie has already been split, and any little changes to the to the to the split of the pie are treated very seriously because someone becomes relatively stronger, uh, or someone loses out, and uh, they want things to be stable. It's called stabilnost, and that's like the governing ideology of the Putin reign: stabilnost at all costs. Uh, but it's like an oak tree. Uh, nah, you know, oak tree is too stately. What's an ugly tree? I don't know, a pine tree, a brittle pine tree where, yeah, it's strong. You'll hurt your arm if you punch it. But if the wind blows hard enough, it can't bend, whereas a reed uh, can bend with the wind. So the system is so rigid. Why couldn't they get rid of Shoigu? He messed up the SMO. Uh, it, was, it was a complete failure. Uh, Russia lost a lot of troops getting into position. Then they couldn't do any coup. Then they started fighting this disastrous war. They had to retreat two times seriously. They've been losing a lot of men. Uh, Donbass has been getting shelled. They've lost all their allies. Finland has joined NATO. The economy is reeling. Uh, and and no, not one person, not one person of any uh, actual rank anywhere in the Russian government or any structure has lost their position. Can you imagine that? Not one person has it's been It's because fired. everything is going according to plan. <laughs> right. right. They, they, they have no ability to adjust. It's the most brittle structure ever, but it's stable, right? For now. Yeah. So Prigozhin comes along and he's like, I want in. I want to change things. I want to do things my way. I want political something. You got to give me something. You know, he, does, he didn't even want to be fighting this war. Because he was losing a lot of men. I mean, he says he only lost 20,000 men in Bakhmut. But I think he lost a lot more. 
he was he was much happier doing his thing in Africa. And why was he in Africa? Why are all these oligarchs uh, fighting in Africa? Russia's oligarchs. These are the loser oligarchs, like uh, Malafeyev, who's this uh, Orthodox oligarch, and and a bunch of others. They're like newcomers, or they're not uh, friends with uh, people in the Kremlin. So they're sent off to do their dirty work somewhere else. There's no pie to go around for them. So upstarts like Prigozhin, that's why they were in Africa. That's why they were tasked with the dirty work. Okay. So he's like, I wanted to be there. I didn't even want to be here. You guys asked us to come here and to fight, but then you wouldn't you know, let us actually do our job. So uh, the long of it is that uh, Putin should have negotiated something out. He should have come to a deal. It doesn't seem like Prigozhin uh, was being that unreasonable. I mean, he, his demands were kind of straightforward from what we know. Again, the above ground stuff. Um, but he didn't. Then he decided to call them uh, traitors and said that you know they should be killed. Great. So now you've basically put their backs against the wall uh, and, you've set, and you've given them no, no other options except to march on Moscow, right? It's like when the Senate declares Caesar the enemy of Rome. Well, congratulations. Now he has no choice but to depose the Senate, right? You, and the people who run Russia are so dumb, obviously. I mean, they're, 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 they're very clever. They're very cynical. They're very, you know, they can maximize short-term profit, but, you know, Caesar, Rome, what? I don't think they know any of this stuff. So that was horrible what he did. Then, like a fool, uh, less than 12 hours later, his poodle, uh, Peskov, has to say, oh, yeah, no, we're dropping charges. Oh, no, we're going to, it's okay. Terrorists, yeah. And that was yesterday. Idiots. Now he's now it's fine. We're all squared up. Yeah, he can run away to Belarus. Idiots who were who were first of all before the whole thing started. Wagner, these great heroes. They are the true sons of Russia, right? Then the mutiny starts. Kill them! Kill them! They're traitors! Kill them all! Then they're they're called off, and actually they're not terrorists. We're in the gray zone. Oh well, it, actually nothing even happened. It was it was just a misunderstanding. Fascinating how these people. <laughs> no, you know, uh, but it's not over. It's not no, over. No, no, it isn't over. And that's my I guess the final question here. Where are we going from here? Where on earth does this go from here? Uh, well, look, the Kremlin needed to buy time because they got caught with their pants down. Um, they they freaked out. And uh, they panicked. And that was probably what Prigozhin was counting on. If you look at the situation objectively, uh, Prigozhin's situation where basically he was either about to be assassinated by his words or about to be like in a, you know, completely dissolved and where he is 24 hours later, uh, it's quite an improvement, right? So a lot of people are saying, oh, put him in his place. No, he didn't. God, no, he didn't. Like he basically gave him, he basically... You know, wiped off. Uh, he said he was forced to make a deal with him. We don't know what was in this deal, but I believe that it's only a matter of literal hours or maybe days before the Kremlin starts reneging on the deal. I assume that they're going to have the FSB start killing uh, members of Wagner, and I'm pretty sure that it, it will lead to an escalation. Uh, Lukashenko is now a guarantor. So great, now they're going to uh, pull Belarus in, and that's going to lead to tensions with a. Uh, you know, an, an ally state, the only ally Russia has left. Uh, the Kremlin is extremely vindictive. Um, they don't make compromises with anyone, unless it's, of course, their esteemed Western partners. For them, they're willing to bend over backwards. They're willing to sell everything and do anything for their esteemed Western partners. 
But uh, for someone within Russia who's trying to get his concerns heard or trying to somehow change the situation, no compromise, no negotiation with terrorists, unless, of course, they're winning, in which case we'll negotiate with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, what happens next? I'm pretty sure Well, we've seen. The only real development was Shoigu finally made an appearance. After he messed up the SMO, he basically disappeared from public life, uh, basically hiding. And uh, then yesterday, no, today, he showed a video of him, like, staring at things. You know, like how King Jong-un goes around and, like, stares at stuff. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Shoigu did that. And the only other news is that the FBI, uh, sorry, the FSB says that uh, actually they might, uh, the uh, investigation into, into uh, Prigozhin is still ongoing, which uh, is already starting to renege on the terms right. because obviously... They said it would be dropped. Right. So we'll see. We'll hmm. see. I think it's it'll get more interesting. Well, yeah, it doesn't seem like it's over by a long shot. And um, just to just for the sake of listeners out there who are not in Russia and do not understand the sentiment there, you have a post up Russians support Wagner actually, in which you make the point that uh, well, the average Russian probably isn't on the side of Shoigu in in regards to this. So who who ends up winning in the court court of public opinion here? Well, there is an interesting survey that was released before all this. I think it was at least a month old. Um, and I, I think I wrote about it, but um, basically it was just a poll. And they said, uh, who do you support to the Russian public? And Prigozhin was in second place, I think, behind Putin. Uh, so Prigozhin, and you have to understand that for most of this time, most of this war, Wagner was operating under a media blackout. The media, the state media in Russia was not reporting on them. There are several reasons for this. One, it's illegal to have mercenaries in Russia and no one bothered to change the law. So it's kind of embarrassing. Secondly, uh, they didn't want him stealing the thunder. Uh, thirdly, he had enemies in the media and the media is, you know, it's in Russia, it's, it's pretty much controlled by one man. Um, but whatever, that's a story for another time. And uh, and they didn't, and yes, yeah, so I mean, like the, the Shoigu has a very close relationship with the state media. In fact, that's they helped him create his image uh, many years ago as like this tough, no nonsense guy. You've probably seen the memes of him like staring intensely at like a, at a camera or fishing and being all, you know, hardcore. So that's that's a that's a that's a media campaign, right? So so the media was more pro Shoigu, and so and finally uh, there is nationalists who fight for uh, Prigozhin, and they use symbols like the Kalavrat which is basically a sun wheel. And um, Russia's narrative is that they're fighting neo-Nazism, which is complete bullshit. And, uh, you know, they first of all, Russia's fighting conscripts. <laughs> they're fighting a bunch of peasants. Anyone who, who, like, I know a lot of people in Ukraine, and anyone with any money at all uh, is, is still able to avoid uh, getting drafted. The people who are being sent really have no, like, money at all to, to not be able to pay uh, off these bribes, uh, these uh, to to not be enlisted. Uh, the whole neo-Nazi nar- narrative um, is uh, is is frankly bizarre because Ukrainians elected Zelensky because first of all he's Jewish, <laughs> second of all uh, he's um, he's liberal and he's democratic, and I don't use that as a compliment. I think these are dirty words, especially in the Slav lands. Uh, he's pro-West. These are all things that you can say honestly about him. There are these groups like Azov or uh, other groups from the west of the country in Galicia, these uh, Bandera-type nationalists like Pravi Siekta. But um, 
Russia doesn't care about them because Russia swapped them out for Medvedchuk, uh, their mm, boy, right. uh, their oligarch. If mm. they actually cared at all about denazification, why did they swap out all the prisoners for a corrupt oligarch uh, who yeah. basically ruined Ukraine for them? So they don't care about it. It's, it's all a fig leaf. Uh, and as Prigozhin himself says, the war was started over Medvedchuk, not because of Azov. Or, Azov you, is filled with Russians as well. It was on, it's from Kharkiv. I wrote a whole article explaining the origins of Azov and how it was basically filled with FSB spooks and SBU spooks. And uh, what they did was they created these extremist groups to, do, to um, what do you call, discredit patriotic organizations mm. in Russia. So they do it in America too. The FBI does the same thing. Yep. And they send these freaks, like in America, I'm sure they'd like fly a, a swastika flag or something to discredit someone protesting for the Second Amendment or something, right? right. Same thing in Russia. And uh, they did that and... They, and then all these people ended up coalescing into one organization called Azov. And I have the receipts. I wrote an in-depth article on it. And all of a sudden, now there's this neo-Nazi boogeyman, right? With, don't, don't look too deeply at the connections. Why are they all from Moscow? You know, why, why, were, why is one of them literally a well-known FSB agent? You know? So uh, there's this, what I'm saying is that the story is far more complicated. There's a lot more details to it. This narrative that they're demilitarizing and denazifying the country is bogus because there's more Nazis now. That is, there's more people in these organizations that uh, are indeed Nazi uh, and that has been enabled by the war, not reduced. And there's more military equipment in Ukraine now. And there's more soldiers and more foreign advisors and, and, and all the stuff associated with militarization than there was before the SMO. And oh, yeah, so NATO is enlarging and... Ukraine's getting nuclear-capable right. F-16s and every yeah everything else that you can but, imagine. But, hey, but Putin says everything's going according to plan. He sits there with his baby face. He can barely even move. Everyone's like, oh, he's so calm. Oh, he's so poker face. The man can't move his face. You know, no one says that about Biden because everyone understands that that, that face is stapled to the back <laughs> yeah. of his head. Biden's so calm. <laughs> yeah, he's so calm. He's not even there. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's alpha like leadership qualities. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. No one can call a spade a spade. Mm. Well, some um, crazy, crazy stuff happening, and you've just broached, I guess, really the next question would be, okay, so where is the whole SMO going, and what's the end game, and what does it look like? But I think that would take about six hours to go through, so... I'll just say quickly, you're seeing it, baby, like, this is it. it like, uh, they're trying to get it to, like, a kind of a cold, stagnated conflict, because they've lost. They've lost the SMO, they lost it within the first month, they lost the not war, uh, I mean, right now they're holding pretty well, actually. Uh, but uh, they're not going to go into the, the advance. They're not going to take Kiev. They don't want to take Kiev. They've given up. You know, like the, the, anyway. Um, yeah, I don't want to. We're, we're probably out of time. But uh, get used to what you're seeing right now. This sort of slow grinding stagnation, just people dying on both sides, senseless war, divisions being built now that will last centuries between uh, two formerly brotherly nations. And uh, the ghouls in Washington cackling and, and, and having a good time mm. because all their best plans have come to fruition. Yeah. Thank all because of the help of the Kremlin mm. uh, and how and, and, you know, and, and just everything that they've done has made the situation a thousand times worse. Well done. Bravo. Well, Roloslavsky, I can imagine there are going to be uh, some people in my audience who are going to want to send you love letters and people who want to send you the opposite of love letters. So let's direct them to your blog once again, the Slavland Chronicles. How can they find that? How can they contact you? How can they see what work you've done? What do you want to plug? 
I just want to plug the the blog. Um, my Twitter, I don't really use it. Um, and yeah, it's it's. I'm just on Substack, and you can read my articles. I don't know uh, if you want to reach out to me. You can write in the comments section. Um, that's pretty much it. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. There will be a bunch of links in the show notes, obviously the link to your blog in general and some of the specific things we've talked about. And there's a lot more to talk about. And I imagine we might have conversations in the future to go into some of the points that were raised in this conversation. But anyway, I think we'll leave it there for today. Thank you for your uh, generous uh, time for today. It's been a long conversation, but I appreciate it. There was a lot to go through, and I think we covered a lot of bases. Roloslavsky, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. I'd love to talk to you again.